Because our life is but like a weaver's shuttle. Our life is but a vapor of smoke. Another passage tells us our life is like the grass, the flower that's here today and it withers tomorrow. That's what our life is like. And so I'm trying to help ensure. I want you to know this with everything in me. I go back, you know, sometimes I think and I pray, Lord, am I really... Are people following me? Are they understanding this? Is this getting through? This is some of the most critical things that, that I think I've ever shared with you. I mean, there's so much hanging in the balance, so much depending on whether or not we get our lives in sync with the Scripture, in balance with what God and how God wants us to live our lives. So in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, we see this. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 is right after Peter's just shared his first message with people. And one of the things he tells them is to repent every one of you and believe in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. He also talks to them about, he warns them to save themselves from this corrupt generation. He also talks to them about Christ, who has been appointed to judge the living and the dead. So what happens is about 3,000 people get saved. In other words, there's no church except for Peter, the apostles, the women, they numbered about 120 people. They're in the upper room, the Holy Spirit comes, now the same day, Peter preaches his first message, and 3,000 people respond. Instantly, a mega church. 3,000, that's a whole lot of people. Now these 3,000 people had moved. Well, let me explain this. They were from every part of the world. It wasn't that they moved to Jerusalem. They had made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Parthians, Medians, Scythians, Ethiopians. They were converts to Judaism. They'd come for Passover. Peter is sharing, which is now the day of Pentecost, and these people convert from Judaism to Christianity. And guess what? They didn't go back home. Now, husbands and wives, they, they didn't leave one another. It would have been traditional for a husband to bring his family or for the wife and the husband to come. So what you have now is this mosaic of ethnic backgrounds in Jerusalem. Which was a phenomenal thing. Because Jews had really nothing to do with non-Jews other than those who converted to Judaism. And that wasn't a whole lot of people. So now you've got this pocket, this group, the 3,000 people of all different racial backgrounds. And here's what it says they do. Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to fellowship, to breaking bread, that's communion, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is an extraordinary picture. And this is what I joined 20 years ago. 
One of the primary reasons I joined 20 years ago is because I never experienced anyone doing church like this before in my life. I'll never forget going to this church in Ames, getting with these group of rogue Christians. And they took this really seriously. If there was a need, someone had a need in the church, an emergency, they didn't reward laziness. But if there was a need, people would actually sell things or they'd go and they'd give. It might be a car, it might be food, it might be clothes, whatever they had. In fact, I'll never forget before I moved to Ames, but I knew of Ames, I was meeting with a little Bible study group of people in Fort Dodge, Iowa. And there was a couple there, a young couple. Well, they weren't actually married. They got saved, and she was already pregnant. And they had a Down syndrome baby. They had no insurance. It cost them, I think, about twenty dollars or $30,000 at that time. Like I said, it was almost 20 years ago. The church in Ames raised... $20,000. Now, now, I want you to understand something. It wasn't a sister church. They didn't even know this couple. And most of the people in the church in Ames were college students. And they raised this money and sent it to this couple. That's the kind of spirit that has been woven in this church, in the church that I was a part of then. Where did they get it? Right here in the New Testament. I got a call, some of you know the Sordabergs and their story, when we brought Jake up here and, and, and raised money for the Sordabergs. I got a call from the paper in Burnsville at the time, and the guy who uh, wanted to do the interview, he said, Mark, he said, I'll be honest with you, I couldn't believe when I heard about this. I really don't know how you end up hearing about it. I think through the Miracle Network or Miracle in Minnesota or something. He said, I, just, I can't even believe a church does this kind of stuff. And he said, I think it's so extraordinary, I'd like to do a, a story in, in the paper on your church and why you did it. Well, to me, the why is, how could we not do it? The Bible says in 1 John, greater love has no man than this, than he lays down his life for his friends. He laid down his life for us. We know love by this, 1 John says that He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need and says, go, be warned, be filled, and does nothing to help, how can the love of Christ be in him? That's pathetic. That's pathetic. Brothers and sisters, that should not be our spirit, nor should it be our standard. Our standard should be, you are my family, and I want you to know something, you are my family. And, and, and I am your family, and we are to lay down our lives for each other. This is part of what the small groups do. Some of you wondered, what do small groups do? It's part of what they do. There are a number of small groups, that a, a couple particularly, or even a, with a single or someone's going through something difficult. Maybe they lost a job. Or the couple. Uh, we have one couple. Is Charlie, are you in here? Charlie's in here. Anybody here from Charlie's small group? Well, they must be in the other side. That's all right. What? You're there. They have a couple in their small group that's... What? You're in it too? You're in it too. All right. They have a couple in their small group that, where the wife is dying of cancer. She just had a brand new baby. 
And they have for how long has it been now? Nine months? Nine months you've been doing this? Nine months. They've been, besides that, raising their own families, doing child care, taking over meals, doing everything they can for this couple. You have no idea what a burden and what a load they have taken from this family and how challenging that's been for all of them together. I know of other small groups that have raised money, couples out of their own pocket, that said, well, what's the need? How can we help first? And if they can't help, and if it's bigger, then we go to the church. It starts right there on that intimate level. And it doesn't matter to us what color the person is or what their background is if there's a real need. Now, there are times, that would be the first one to admit it, you know, the Bible tells us very clearly in Thessalonians that if anyone will not work, neither should he eat. So we try to evaluate these situations carefully at times because we don't want you folks being taken advantage of. But our standard is we share with brothers and sisters in Christ and we have things in common. I can't tell you how many times as a young man, I remember many years ago, shortly after my wife and I got married and my car, I was in a band, in the church band singing with another guy and he led the music. I was just there. I was just a singer. And his name was Craig and he and his wife were pastoring in Dallas, Texas. Whenever we see each other, I haven't, I, I've seen him uh, in the last few years. I've been down there to do conferences, but before that I hadn't seen him in 15 years. When I finally did, it was like we'd never even left one another. He was one of the first people who ever did something that I thought you know, was extraordinary that someone would actually do for me. He and his uh, gal got married. I remember singing at their wedding, and he decided, they decided... Well, we don't need two cars. And Mark, your car is broken down, so here's my Ford Pinto. You can have it. Well, the state wouldn't allow him to give it to me. See, they don't allow you to give it because of licensing, so I paid him a dollar. And that way I could pay tax on it so the state got their benefit, and then I got license plates for it. Man, I'll tell you, that's etched in my mind. I'll never forget when my wife and I were living in the trailer and three months after we moved in, the water heater broke. We went three months without hot water with two small children in the house. We played Little House in the Prairie and heated up the water on the stove and washed them, sitting them in the sink. And a small group that we were involved with, someone found out about it, and they took up a collection, went out and bought us a water heater, and paid Sears to have it put in. So I'll tell you, the people I've been with the last 20 years of my life are the finest, most extraordinary people I've ever been around. And it has been our desire to bring that same spirit that was shown to us, lived out from the Word of God, to this body of believers. We're to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. We are family. We are, and I'll tell you a little secret, the Spirit is thicker than blood. It's a lot more than blood relation here. We are related eternally forever to one another. We are linked by our Savior. And He set the example and told us it is more blessed to give than to receive. And in fact, 
This verse should be etched in our mind that He who is rich became poor for us that we, through His poverty, might become rich. And often that's what it is involves when you're dealing with the pain of another brother or sister. They may be going through something difficult and you may actually have to sacrificially give. And it may cost you a little. But God will reward you and your faith will deepen and the world will stand back in awe. And that's what they did to this church. They stood back in awe. I mean, this is unbelievable. These Jews, these Parthians, Midians, Ethiopians, they're gathered together, they sell what they got, they give it collectively, they... They disperse it where there's a need. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. So you ask, so what should I be devoted to? You should be devoted to Wednesday nights. You should be devoted to getting taught the Scriptures. You should be devoted to fellowship. You've got to be in a small group. This is one level of fellowship, but it's not the deep level of fellowship. Small group, that's the deep level of fellowship. Fellowship, where you're with one another. You're rubbing shoulders. You're bearing each other's burden. Loving one another. Accepting one another. Forgiving one another. Teaching one another. Encouraging each other. Bearing each other's burdens. Praying for one another. They were devoted to this. And you know what's really amazing? You think, Mark, I don't know anybody. Well, they didn't either. This is 3,000 people thrown together by the Spirit of God. All of a sudden, wow, I guess... We're related now. (laughs) And they weren't from the same culture. They were from all over the world. But they were together. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. That's communion. Jesus said, as often as whenever you gather, and and the Bible seems to indicate that in the first day of the week, when the saints gathered, they would remember the Lord's Supper. There's only two ritual traditions that Jesus left us. Baptism and breaking bread. This is only two. And there's a reason for them. You get together and remember the Lord. You get together and remember the Lord. You get together and remember what He did for you. That He's coming back for you. And He ain't going to leave you here. And they were devoted to prayer. Brother and sister, it's time for you to quit being afraid to pray when you're in your small group. Just do it. Do it. You don't have to be fancy. You don't have to be eloquent. But if you want to obey the Lord, be devoted to it. And pray. Pray for yourself. Pray for each other. It's one of the ways you can serve others. And get over your fear. Say, well, I may be fear. I don't know exactly what to say, but well, so-and-so is going through a hard time. Lord, I just pray, you know, you'd help them. And you'd strengthen them. And I know if I was going through it, I'd be really discouraged. So, Lord, encourage them. This is what they were devoted to. Acts chapter 4. Just turn with me there for a moment to verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Now, I want to make sure no one misunderstands. We're not talking here about communal living. Although at times I thought it'd be pretty neat. <laughs> Occasionally when I ride, I, I tell you this seriously, when I when I, I go on a ride, the days I, if I'm not on trails, I go along uh, from Crosby Nature Farm in St. Paul up the, the river, you know, all the way to the Lake Street Bridge, or way up to into Minneapolis by the university. 
whenever I go by those huge, huge houses along the river, you know, they say for sale, I think about the eight people I'd like to live with. I think that would be so neat to live with other believers. You know, just... And I've, and I've actually done those types of things before. Or even if you can be in a... Some of you know what this is like. Living in an apartment complex with four or five other brothers and sisters, you know, or, or houses that live, you know, just right next to it. It is incredible. Or some of you that, that have a neighbor that comes to everyone that knows the Lord. The encouragement that there is phenomenal. It's phenomenal. And you just become a radiant testimony to the rest of the complex or neighborhood that's around. You know, it's just, it's a neat thing. This also does not mean here that everybody just said, you know, they, they emptied their pockets, they sold everything and just put it in this big pot. This was an attitude here that developed among the believers that then worked out into practical life. And here it is. None of what I have is mine. It was given to me by God. For the Bible says, no one has what he did not freely receive. And it was given to us by God. I am but a steward of it. Now, I want to be faithful with it. I'll never forget the time, you know, shortly after I got my van. There was a brother, we were going to have lunch together, and he had a job uptown. He usually took the bus, and I offered to take him. So, well, I'll give you a ride. And, well, lo and behold, you know, my car gets smashed that day, taking that brother to breakfast. And, and I got it fixed, but it's never like it was, and now it's rusted in the spot, and it got hit again in the same place. It's just, it's the Lord's. You know, if that's what happens, it's the Lord's. I don't have it quite paid off yet. I have 135,000 miles on it, and... I'm hoping to get 200,000 miles on it. But one of the reasons there's so many miles on it is because it's gone to Ohio, to Colorado, to Indianapolis, to conferences serving the body of Christ. I mean, if it wears out, it wears out. It's God's. It's God's. Our things are the Lord's and we're to use them, yes, for our own needs and to provide for our needs, and to provide for our family, but also, if others may need them, or they could use them, or maybe for a time, we should give them to be used freely. And at times, maybe, the Lord may even lead us to give them, here, just take it. I want to bless you with it. God bless me with it, I'll bless you with it. Our God is a generous God. And this was the attitude these brothers and sisters took on. Look in verse 31. There was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them. They brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This was the prevailing attitude of the early church. And it carries on throughout the epistles. And that's the standard that God wants us to have. He wants us to be devoted to each other. The Bible says, do good to all men, but especially to those of the household of faith. The book of Galatians tells us that. So, a big part of what we do is seeking to encourage each other. Seeking to reach out. You know, 
I don't do these things. I, I hope you all realize this. I'll get to this in a minute. I don't do a lot of things I do because it's my job. I do it because I'm a Christian. You know, in fact, I never have worked this job like it's a nine-to-five job. In fact, uh, basically none of the pastors do. They take your calls at almost any time you can get a hold of them and return them at, you know, some of the most unorthodox times. I've been over to people's homes at two in the morning to help them settle a problem. But I also did that before I was ever in the ministry. The body of Christ is my family. And my family needs me. And your family, your brothers and sisters need you. And we're to reach out with an encouraging word, with comfort, with help, help moving. You know, one of the most encouraging things in the world years ago is I knew if I ever moved. And again, I'm, before I got into pastor, you, you know, you expect the pastor gets this, but I'll tell you what a lot of the saints have experienced this. you got to move somewhere, man, we can get 20 people just like that. Your small group will be there. And often they'll have a truck to loan you. That's been the heritage that I've experienced for 20 years of my Christian life. Somebody needed to move a refrigerator, man, there was someone there. And they'd bring a dolly to boot. Help you move it. Well, I wanted to cover that tonight because I wanted you to know sometimes, sometimes, you know, I'm perceived to have the world on my heart and I'm not worried about the saints. And I just want you to know nothing could be further from the truth. Actually, it's just, sometimes it's somatics. When I say the world, when I say people are on God's heart, I mean all people saved and lost. And we're to reach out to the lost, but we are to be devoted to our brothers and sisters. We're to love each other, and that love is to take form, and it's to be in action, and it's to show itself in real care. And that may be dollars and cents, it may be time, it may be resources. And there may come a need so great that we'd actually sell off some of our stocks and bonds, sell one of our extra cars, or sell a house and go live in rented quarters. I don't know. But I'm just telling you, you read the Bible yourself. This is how they lived. And i got to tell you right now, the last 20 years, my constant craving has been for real Christianity. I do not want a substitute. I do not want pseudo-Christianity. That's what I left 20 years ago. And that's what we want to do here is build together something that, you know, looks and feels and tastes like the real thing, the early church, New Testament Christianity. I want to share this little analogy with you for just a moment. I want to go into something really different. Okay? Hopefully I'll have enough time to cover this sort of effectively. I want to talk to you for a moment about a farmer, all right? I want you to think about farming for just a moment. If you're going to be a farmer, you live a farmer's lifestyle. It's one of the differences between being a farmer and almost any other profession in the world. Well, maybe a doctor might come into this, but farmers live a farmer's lifestyle, right? Farmer is not going to take a course in astrophysics. Because that doesn't fit into the farmer's life. Farming, 
I, um, I grew up actually learning a lot of farmers, and I actually worked on farms for summer jobs. I remember living in Sunbury, Iowa, and riding my bike about six miles out of town to my friend Leon Steinhagen's house. And his father was a dairy farmer. They weren't, you know, real extravagant dairy farmers. They didn't have any machines. And I remember going out with him in his little red wagon. And we'd fill the five-gallon bucket of feed. This was just part of Leon's day. And he'd take it out and we'd lift it up together and throw it in the trough. The cows would come and eat. And one by one, we'd get them in the, in the little things they put around their neck that look kind of like a stalks. And what are they called? Stanchions. Thank you. <laughs> I call them stalks because they remind me of Puritan times when you, you know, you have that thing over your head. And they'd start milking them. Farming is a lifestyle. Okay? It's a lifestyle. You're sort of like married to the farm. You're married to the land. Now, when, with that analogy in mind, I want you to think about this. Christianity is also a lifestyle. It's not an addendum to your life. Farming is not an addendum to a farmer's life. It's his lifestyle. His whole family lives it. His wife's involved in it. They sacrifice together for it. And sometimes they have seasons that, um, especially in harvest time, you're up very late at night, you're up very early in the morning. You get the harvest in, and then winter's a little different. Winter may not be oppressing, depending on whether or not you have livestock to take care of. Christianity's a lifestyle. A farmer is not worried about being a lawyer. A farmer is not worried about things that do not fit into his paradigm of life. Now, what I'm trying to say is this. Everything in our life matters to God. Your job matters to God. Your free time matters to God. Everything is important to God in your life. But we should have a paradigm of life that Christianity is my life and then we fit everything else in as it has value and importance. Do, do you all understand that? you all kind of catch what I'm trying to get at? I don't mean that you don't be a lawyer, you don't be architects, you don't have jobs, you don't have jobs that are demanding. I'm just trying to help us see that Christianity is a lifestyle and God meant for us to live it out. Not just to talk about it, but to live it out and have it permeate all we do. Our jobs, our homes, our relationship, our time, everything we do should reflect a Christian lifestyle. Everything. I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 29. Now, I, I'm going to warn you, this is really a heavy verse. 1 Corinthians 7, 29. But I hope to help us grasp the intent that I believe God is trying to say to us here in this verse. Verse 29, Paul is writing, What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short, from now on, those who have wives 
should live as though they have none. Those who mourn as if they didn't. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away and I would like you to be free from concern. Now Paul, God, is not saying, men, don't love your wives. Wives, don't love your husbands. Neglect each other. It's not what God's saying. He's not saying, don't ever mourn, don't be happy, don't own something. God is trying to give you an eternal perspective on life. You won't be married in heaven. You will take no possessions to heaven. The only thing that lasts, I told you a few weeks ago, is God, His Word, people, and what you do for Christ. Those are the only four things that will last for eternity. Those are the eternal values. And we better make sure we organize our life around those eternal values. I have a dear friend. Was a men- is a mentor. Was a mentor. For me in my Christian life, I used to pray I'd just be half the individual this brother was. But he told me one time, he said, Mark, always remember that we do not do in times of war what we do in times of peace. Again, what, what do you mean we do not do in times of war what we do in times of peace? Well, this brother, this friend of him, had been in Vietnam. So he said this. He said, Mark, here's what I'm saying. Let's suppose that I get married. My wife's expecting our first baby. And I get called to active duty. Do you think they're going to care whether or not my wife has a baby and I'm going to be there to see it born? It's wartime, son, he'd tell me. It's wartime. You pick up your gun and you fight. Now, fathers, please. I'm not telling you you shouldn't be there when your wife has a baby. And you should miss all your kids' birthdays. And you should forget all the anniversaries. But I am trying to help you understand that the biblical view of our lives, and I told you this last week, is that God owns us. We are His property. We are not our own. And we are in a struggle of eternal life and death. So you better believe that we ought to live different than we would live if it was all peace and finery. Heaven will be that time. Heaven, there will be no demands placed on you whatsoever. You will retire in bliss every day forever and you'll never get tired of it. Right now, we're involved in a great struggle. And we're to take that quite seriously. Seriously enough, I can tell you this right now, My family has made many sacrifices to do what we're doing. Financially, time-wise, for years. Years and years and years. The last 20 years of our life, really. And almost 17 I've been married. My gosh, we have done without a whole lot of things. A whole lot of things. 
my wife is dealing with a whole lot of things. When I first got here, when I first moved here, I was up on the campus. Then I was over here, I was over there, I was hanging out with the singles, I was starting a student group, starting Partners for Life, doing new groups, leading the band, coming to practice, singing, teaching. I mean, sacrifice have to be made now. I can tell you this, you could ask, I never neglected her. I just had to make the most of every opportunity. But you see, when you're united, when you're united, when the farmer's wife and the farmer's united, she understands you've got to be in the tractor till 2 in the morning. She understands she may have to get up the next morning and milk the cows. I'm really serious about what I'm saying. This will bring the unity and the harmony to our families, to our marriages that we need. We don't just go to work, live a Christian life, and then come home and slouch, you know. And then get up and go through the whole process the next day. We have to remember that we're in a battle, we're in a struggle, we're in a war for human beings. For human beings. And it's demanding. It is demanding. And it costs. And God will give us the supernatural energy that we need. Now God wants us to have balance and that's what this whole class is about and I'm going to get into some of those practicals. All right. First you must understand this conceptually, vision-wise, principally, command-wise. And then we can start working these things out. All right. Proverbs 2. I'm just going to read some of these. I'm just going to give you the quote. So we don't have to look them up. Proverbs 2.15 says, The plans of the diligent lead to advantage. Ephesians 5.16 and 17 basically says this, Do not live your lives as fools, but as wise men, making the most of your time, for the days are evil. Another version says, Redeem the time. Alright. We need to manage our lives by managing our time. You need to use your time to live out your Christian values. Okay? A farmer, I can tell you this from being around them, has to make real good use of their time. Another analogy Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, he says, Timothy, think of this. The hard-working farmer will be the first to share in the crops. The athlete must go into strict training and compete according to the rules if he wants to win the prize. We have the Atlanta Olympics coming this summer. What do you think those Olympians live their life like? You ever thought about it? I, I admire Olympic athletes. Do you know what it takes? The focus, the determination, the self-discipline. And they're doing it for a little medal that doesn't mean a thing. It really doesn't mean a thing. I mean... Who held the world record for the 100 meters 16 years ago? I don't know. I mean, who really cares? I mean, who knows? They go into that kind of discipline for a perishable wreath. God, I'm telling you, brother and sister, God is telling us to be disciplined with our lives. So we've got to get organized. Some of us are real out of balance because we're not organized. So, so now, for my practical teaching, get a planner. <laughs> Any planner. Buy another one. Just get a planner. 
All right? You can get a day timer, a Ben Franklin planner, a Covey planner, a day runner planner, a target planner, a cheapy planner. And then start making decisions with your time that reflect your values. See this? I'll take good to be honest. This, this stuff, see, this, it's not very hard for me. Some people think I'm not very organized. You might be surprised. Yeah, you really might be. You know, I don't think administration is my like my gift. But I'm very focused. And I stay on track. And I make sure that the priorities in my life get done. So let's talk about those for a minute. My priorities, my relationship with the Lord. I make sure, I basically have a routine. See, I don't write a list down of everything I'm going to do today. For one, I have a very good memory. Two, I don't like to write and it doesn't exactly fit my style. Okay? But one way or another, you've got to get your life organized. You've got to get your life organized because the Bible commands you to. If you want to obey the Bible, the Bible says make the most use of your time for the days are evil. Tells us that many. Psalms tells us, teach us to number our days that we may present to God a heart of wisdom. Alright? So, my relationship with God, my time with God, is a routine. Every day, I have time with God. I pray, and I meditate on His Word. Now for me, maybe a little different for you. Some of you are just reading the Bible. I not only read it, but I think about it a lot. And meditation is the key to success. Read Psalm 1. That's a whole other teaching. Just read it. Ponder it. You'll see what it means. Alright? You know the second priority in my life? My wife. Second priority in my wife. In my life is my wife. And the third is my kids. And I never neglect them. Never. I live by them. Now, <clears throat> I, I mean, I'm almost an extremist in this. I do something with my wife some way or another, almost every day. Or I communicate with her. Or we sit down and we talk. One of the things we do every other day is we work out. That's one of the things we do together. We work out. Now, you say, how can we do that? By the way, I work about 60 hours a week on an average. The other pastor's about the same. Sometimes more, sometimes a little less. There's seasons. Sometimes it's a lot, a whole lot more than that. But because we teach our children home, and this is one of the reasons we did this, all right? I'm just going to go through with you how we organized our life. There's a few things you can glean, but I want you to know I'm not telling you to go do the same. I am only sharing with you how we've tried to put our values into the way we live our life since the day we were married. All right, my wife and I knew for us that we wanted to get in the ministry. Okay, we've known that all along. Now, we also have value goals as a mother and dad. We knew there are specific things we wanted to give to our children. Okay, and we felt as we prayed, as we sought God on it, we felt the best way we could do it and ensure it was to teach them at home. So that was always our primary objective and it was our primary goal. So, that's what we did. It was also our primary objective because of our convictions from the Word of God that Kathy should be home-centered so my wife never worked outside of the home, even when we made $5,000 a year. She stayed focused on our kids. Her time was devoted to that family. 
Alright? That was the decision we made. And we made the sacrifices necessary to do it. We bought our clothes at the Goodwill. We bought them at garage sales. And we drove really cheap cars. Okay? Now again, I am not saying any of this for you to feel bad. I'm not saying any of it for you to compare. I'm only using it as a practical way for you to see how you bring your values into your life and that you can do more than you ever thought you can do, depending on what your values are. All right? So we set out to do this, and we've been doing it ever since. And by the way, one of the main reasons the pastors are able to answer you night or day is because uh, all of their wives teach their kids at home. That's one of the reasons they're so amazingly flexible. So, see, I may do things with my kids in the afternoon. I, I, one of the reasons I have my office at home, all of this, believe me, is well thought through. Believe me, I realize pastors fall into temptation. I realize, in fact, almost every day, a pastor is immoral and has to get out of the ministry. It's one of the reasons I have my office at home. So I stay close to my wife. I'm forced to stay close. Some of you go, I couldn't stand it. Well, you know, I can feel that way sometimes too. And she feels it too. I realize i got to keep my family together. In fact, see, you have to understand that at Evergreen, it's one of our requirements for our job. In 1 Timothy, it says, if anyone does not manage his own family well and see to it that his children obey him with proper respect and are not given to the charge of being wild or disobedient, they cannot be a pastor. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he manage the household of God? It is my job requirement, see? It's different than being a CEO. So I decided a long time I need to be home-based. So that's what I am. Now, again, please just use this as, a, as ideas. Alright? Ideas. Don't think you've got to go do the same. I don't own a house. There's a reason why I don't own a house. Alright? The primary reason I don't own a house is because it consumes my thoughts. And as a result of the thoughts and the responsibility, it consumes my time. And for me, for me, I'm just telling for me, I would rather give myself to time with my kids than taking care of upkeep on a house. I would rather make sure and ensure that I have time to give the lost, the saved, and my family, and if the roof leaks, the landlady can take care of it. Now, when I said I'm an extremist, I admit that. I'm only trying to show you how you bring your values into your everyday life experience. Now, you can own a home. Nothing wrong with owning a home. I would just warn you to be very careful with your heart and how involved you get in that home. I know of a situation, this is about five years ago, of an individual had a baby coming. You know, a lot of young couples today really kill me. It's like they didn't think Jesus is going to be born because they're having a baby. I mean, the whole the house gets torn apart. That baby's got to have fresh paint on the wall. It, it, the curtains got to match. The crib's got to match. The border on the wall. You'd think Mother Mary was having Jesus. <laughs> I'm I'm really serious. You think God was coming to live with us? I'm just telling you, you need to be really careful because here's what I saw happen. I saw it firsthand. I saw a brother. They were having a baby. Man, they tore the whole house apart, get it all ready. They quit coming to celebration. They quit being 
and they're no longer here anymore. They let their spiritual life slide. There's nothing wrong with having projects in your house. Just make sure that you manage them properly. A brother asked me recently, and I was so encouraged, he got advice on this. He said, Mark, I'm, I'm working on our basement so our wife, my wife can have an office in it. The house needs new windows. I got all these things. Wow, I'm just overwhelmed. I said, boy, brother, just slow down. You can make it another winter with the same windows. Just get the office in because that's the most important. And next year do this project. And next year do that project. But most of us are very poor at managing our lives. We get inundated. We got to get it all done. And we let the important things slide. A relationship with God. Church. Teaching. Growing. Our relationship with our wife or our spouse. And a relationship with our kids. Wives. Your relationship to your kids and your husband is more important than an immaculate home. It's far more important than every corner of the house being dusted, every window and every smudge being off the window. It's so important that you understand that people are the most important things in your life. Now I'll tell you something. If most of us lived by the values that I just laid out, you would hardly ever feel pinched for time again. I mean that. It's the fodder that fills our lives that actually is squeezing out our time for the most important things. I have a little saying I've written to myself. The things that matter most should never be at the mercy of things which matter least. And I refuse, I absolutely refuse to have things that are of little importance take precedent over my love life with my woman and my relationship with my kids. We are tight. And that's the primary importance. All right? Another reason we have time is because we incorporate the family in doing duties around the home. I mean, mom and dad aren't the slaves here, you know. <laughs> and neither are the kids. We all work together. So responsibility is dallied out and we do it together. But I'll tell you something, dads. You better lead by example. I hope you know how to iron and and vacuum. And I hope your kids see you do it. Or you're going to be a terrible example. If you're going to train them, then you better lead them by example. And many of your wives are making huge sacrifices. They all, actually all of them are. Huge sacrifice to keep your family going. Dads, get involved. Get involved. Uh, i got to give you a few more things before you go, okay? or this will be incomplete. So just hang with me for just a moment. We need to bring discipline into our lives. Singles, you need to get to bed at a decent time. Okay? Now, I'm really serious. Singles, they're mostly over here, so I'm talking to them for a minute. See, one of the things that happens when you're married, see, and I watched this last week. You watch this. It'll happen tonight. All the couples with their kids, they'll be gone, and all the singles will be hanging in the hall together. Now, I think that's really neat. I really do. And I'm very touched by it. One of the things that automatically happens when you get married is you have somebody to go home to. And somebody who actually drags you home. And especially if they're little kids. Family just demands organization or you die. See? Single life's different. 
Um, some of you know Julie. Is Julie here tonight? She's not here. She's here somewhere. Julie used to pick me up. Nikki used to be the same way. Nikki. Some of you know Doug's wife, Nikki. They'd pick me up before uh, singing, you know, to, when I used to sing here on stage. And I could tell some nice men they'd been I said, you were up till 2 in the morning last night, weren't you? Man, their eyes were drooping. And they're like, I say, girls, you can't do this. You, you, you gotta, you've got to be peppy and energized this morning. All these people are watching you. You've got to get your beauty sleep. And I'd lovingly rebuke them. Some of you singles, it's hard. I know it's hard for you to make decisions because what happens is you think, well, I'm, I'm freer and I just need to be laying my life down for God. And you're going a million miles a minute and, and you're like, you're spread way too thin. And because I love you, I'm sharing this with you. Get yourself back together, all right? Eat right. People, eat right. You think, well, Mark, why are you saying this? Because it needs to be said. Get some sleep. Psalm 127, it says it's vain. It's futile. To go to bed late and get up early. You're going to get nowhere doing that. You've got to rest your body. Also singles, I want you to know you need time with your roommates. If you're living with roommates. And you know what else? You need time sometimes just go, hey, I'm not answering the phone tonight. I'm staying in my room. Or I'm staying home. And I'm going to regroup and get myself encouraged in the Lord. And I mean it. If any of you want some help, call me. I mean it. Because my heart really goes out. Doug, call Doug. Because Doug, Doug prays for you in this. I pray for you in this. I was involved with singles for years, and I'm just telling you, you've got to, get to you know, organize your life so you don't burn out, because you're going to get burned out. Alright? Learn to say No. Tell you what, I say no to a lot of things. I say no to weddings. I say no to singing. I say no, no, no. I put this in big letters on my sheet. You can't do everything! <laughs> See, that's the American culture. Just do it all. Get it all. You can't. And if you try, you're a nut. You're unfocused. Listen, i got so many other things to say. I gotta do them next week. I'm sorry. I hate this. But <laughs> discipline. I'm sorry I kept you. Alright? You go ponder the things I'm sharing. Next week I'll try to get into this management just a little bit more. But I want you to think about this this week. Managing your life. Managing your life. Is your life and is your time really reflecting what you really value? Are you really living it out? If not, step back, think about it, and next week we'll get into it some more. Lord, thank you for this night. Bless these folks. Help them, Lord, just to glean from what I said. I didn't say anything here, so they'd go out and say, well, okay, i got to homeschool, and i got to do this, and i got to do that. It's not my intention. My intention is just to show to them how you can live out what you value by making decisions, by plotting it out, by planning it, by ensuring that it comes about. So bless them, Lord. Help them. Amen.